This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 26. There have been multiple stages of blueprints through the construction process of our new church building. First was the schematic design phase where our architect drew up an initial overview of the building with exterior elevations and floor plans. After meeting with the elders and our staff, they showed what our sanctuary would look like with a a lofted ceiling and lots of light flooding the room. And they helped determine the dimensions of the lobby that would accommodate space for people to have conversations. They planned out a two-story kids' building where the next generation would hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The next step was the design development phase, DD, as it's called in the construction world, which provided more detail of the building, comprehensive measurements and greater specifications. And then finally was the construction documents phase, where uh, new drawings were created to detail the entire building process. Exact materials were listed for each minute element needed from HVAC to electrical, from millwork to the color of the tile. This week, I was flipping through those construction documents, as one does, And I came across a meticulous drawing of the wooden beams that will be uh, in the sanctuary holding up the ceiling. It was just stunning to me, all the detail and measurements and material that were there. And it just reminded me how much time has gone into making this new building that we are building together a beautiful space where we will be able to gather and worship God each week. I'm not a construction guy. I'm not even a handy guy. In the first service, my father-in-law shouted amen right then. (laughs) But as I look over our blueprints and see what we are building, from the elevation to how a wooden joint is going to fit together, my heart is filled with anticipation, with excitement of this phase. The section of scripture we're studying is one that many people would perhaps just quickly skip through in their Bible reading plan. The blueprints of this tabernacle span 13 different chapters, filling up 457 specific verses of detailed construction drawings. Some some may wonder why so much detail is given for this ancient portable tent in the desert that's no longer even in use. Perhaps uh, you feel about as much excitement in reading these blueprints as you would reading some home built in a land far away at a time long ago. Interesting, perhaps, but what use is this to my life as a follower of Jesus Christ? However, for us to understand the significance of this structure, we have to first place ourselves in the sandals of these Israelites from long ago and think, what this would have meant to them. For those of you who have built a home before, you know the sense of anticipation that can grow just by looking 
at a set of blueprints. If it stalls, you might pull them out still at night to continue to be inspired. This is how it would have felt for Israel. Only far more special, because this is not a run-of-the-mill house they were building, but a home for God. One way we can learn how people thought about the tabernacle is by looking at other places in the Old Testament that speak about it. In our call to worship this morning, from Psalm 84, we heard God's people sing out, How lovely is your dwelling place. The word there in Hebrew is your tabernacle. O Lord of hosts, my soul longs, yes, faints, For the courts of the Lord, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Notice the soul of the psalmist longs, even faints, to be in the tabernacle, in the courts of this place, in the presence of God. The psalm goes on to confess, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. So how did God's people think of this sacred space? This poetic language is saying, there's nowhere else I'd rather be than there. Why? What was it that made this space so special? Ultimately, it was not the beauty of precious metals or sacred furniture, nor was it the presence of the priests scurrying about performing their duties. What made it so special was that the presence of God was there. Does your heart long for the presence of God? The tabernacle was a portable tent designed to be the place where God would dwell among his people. God, the divine architect, gave Moses the exact blueprints of what would go inside, what materials would be used, and the dimensions that the building should be. The tabernacle was a physical expression of Israel's faith in God. They put into action what God had told them to build, expressing their faith, but it was also a visible, continual reminder that God is near. He had come to tabernacle among them. I'd like to divide the sermon under three headings. First, we'll look at the construction of the tabernacle in this chapter, and then look at it theologically with the message of the tabernacle, and then ultimately to see how Christ himself is the fulfillment of this tabernacle. Uh, Rather than have you stand, which would be our custom, I'm going to ask that you would sit today. Uh, The reading is quite long, and um, I want you to be able to really focus on this. Um, I would ask you just to stand in your hearts. This is God's word. His holy and inerrant word, though written long ago, speaks to us today. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim, skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be twenty-eight cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And the five other curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. 
And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost on the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on one side and the cubit on the other, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and that side, to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram's skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons, and for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame, And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top after the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners, and there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, Five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold, and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain." And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands 
forever. First, let's survey these blueprints and look at the construction of the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself was a large freestanding tent surrounded by the walls of the court. The tent itself measured 45 feet long by 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. Even though it was not large, it would be very small compared to our standards today, we couldn't fit in it altogether. It was stunning to behold with the beauty of its precious metals and skilled craftsmanship and sacred objects all revealing the glory of God. These construction documents are arranged in three main categories, curtains, structure, and finally the veil. We'll make our way through those. First, curtains. The walls of the tabernacle were made through layered curtains. Layered curtains created the side walls and the ceiling. I can't think about curtains without thinking how many times I've been um, subjected to watching HGTV by that darling redheaded woman that I live with. Specifically when we were young, there was this British guy on House Hunters that as he's walking through these places, he would always say, and the window treatments are outdated. These curtains are not like those curtains that you would see on HGTV or the ones hanging uh, on the side of your windows. These were, well, forgive me, they're special order. The first layer of the curtain walls were made of ten sheets of fine linen sewn together into two sets of five, making these two massive curtains. And the sheets were then joined together by 50 golden clasps and then draped over the structure we'll look at in a moment, forming these walls and forming the ceiling of the tabernacle. The kind of linen mentioned here refers to the highest quality, most expensive grade, the type worn by royalty. To make them even more special, notice that blue and purple and scarlet yarns are threaded into these curtains. Uh, those, and by the way, in, in Hebrew, it's not the words used for the colors, but the dyes needed to make these colors. So for blue, it's, uh, it's the dye that comes from a, um, a shellfish that lives in the bottom of the ocean, a snail. And for the scarlet needed, this comes from an insect that lived on, on native oak trees that grew all around them. They were hard to come by and very expensive. Also, sewn into the curtains are images of cherubim, the same angelic creatures we looked at with the Ark of the Covenant that are hovering over the Ark where God rules and reigns amid the cherubim. On top of this first layer of curtains is a second layer made of goat hair. Now, goat hair doesn't show up in any of our modern construction processes here in Texas, but in the Middle East, even still today, nomads will often use goat hair to build durable woolen tents that will help protect people from the elements. Finally, two more layers are stacked on top, ram skins, and then our, our translation says goat skins, it could even be sea cow skins, like dolphin skins or something. Uh, it's hard, it's quirky with the Hebrew there, but some kind of leather that would protect it from all of the elements. So the curtains of the tabernacle, don't miss this, are four layers thick, protecting, completely sealing it off from the world. 
verses 15 through 29, provide detail about the structure. For those of you who've ever been camping, you know that every good tent needs a few sturdy poles that will hold up the structure. This holy tent was no exception. Yet this is no common frame. It's made of 50 pillars of wood, each covered with gold, standing 15 feet tall. It's like a forest of golden trees, each with these silver pedestals on each side holding it up. And then across the top, golden crossbars are laid, creating this ladder-like interlocking frame that would be the place where all of the curtains would drape over. So there's a structure. Finally, verses 31 to 35, a veil is described that divided the tabernacle into two rooms. We've mentioned this already. Inside the tabernacle, which is 45 feet by 15 by 15, is the first room, which is the holy place, 30 by 15. This is where the priests would minister. This was where the, arc, where, um, the golden lampstand and the table of bread of presence and also an altar of incense that we'll get to, Lord willing, in a few weeks. Uh, this is where they were stored. And then separating that place, the holy place, from what's called the most holy place or the holy of holies is a massive veil. This veil would uh, protect, it, it both reveals God's glory in its beauty and majesty and also conceals God's glory from breaking out and consuming his people. Of course, only one person was allowed to go into the most holy place. We've seen, and that just the high priest, one day a year on the day of atonement. The last thing mentioned is a screen that covered the doorway, like a, it's like a sliding door. And um, this would prohibit anyone from even peering into the Holy of Holies and seeing what happens back there, protecting them also from the burning presence of God. So now, at the end of chapter 26, we start to see come into focus this project, this construction project known as the tabernacle. Normally, blueprints begin with the big picture. It's a rendering of this is what we'd like to build, and this is the blueprint that will accommodate all of our day-to-day living. Yet, our tour of the tabernacle didn't even mention those things until now. Instead, God began by focusing our attention on the most important thing within the very most important place the Ark of the Covenant within the Holy of Holies. And then from there, he worked his way out. So that's what we're doing. We're now working our way out from the Ark of the Covenant. So there's an overview of the chapter of Exodus chapter 26. Now I'd like to look at it theologically uh, in the sandals of these Israelites as we explore the meaning of the tabernacle. Phil Riken highlighted the reason we study The tabernacle is not so we can draw pictures of it or build an exact replica. Any of you do that in a VBS with popsicle sticks as a child? Or see it on a, uh, what are those, like a felt board? Yeah. Uh, By the way, if you have a good study Bible, there are probably good pictures of the tabernacle in there to give you an actual picture of what it looked like. Um, I would recommend to you the ESV Study Bible Atlas that was edited by John Currid. Um, It's really helpful. Also, Rose Publishing has done um, an educational book on the tabernacle that is also very good, especially for those of you with younger kids. uh, That would be a really helpful resource. So it's not just so we can draw pictures of it or build an exact replica. It's to learn what the tabernacle teaches us about knowing God. 
The question is, what does the tabernacle mean? And there are many lines we can draw from this place as to what it meant for Israel. For the sake of time, I'd like to highlight two. It meant first, and this is no small thing, God is with us. That's what it meant. God told Moses in Exodus 25, 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. He was saying, as we saw, If you build it, I will come. (laughs) This ringing promise reveals something of the heart of God for His people. His desire was to be in fellowship with them, to live in relationship with them. Do not forget they'd been oppressed oppressed for over 400 years in Egypt by a ruler who just barked out orders from the luxury of a penthouse palace. While Israel was forced to labor under burdens too heavy to bear. But now, Yahweh has redeemed them, led them, been with them every step of the way. And he is nothing like Pharaoh. He will not lord over them from a distance. He will dwell among them with his nearness. So these are not just a set of obscure blueprints in the eyes of Israel. They are the plans for how God will dwell among them, knowing that his presence is their good. Just as Israel would live in tents, God himself would live and dwell in a tent. The Holy One of Israel would condescend to live among his people, like his people, for the good of his people. The Ark of the Covenant is where God would rest his feet. It says that this is the footstool of God, this place where heaven and earth join together. The bread of the presence is where Israel would feast in the very presence of God. The golden lampstand would burn through the night, announcing that God is home. So it meant God is with us. And second, it meant God had made a way. God had made a way. The tabernacle is the answer to the question, how can a holy God live among sinful people? How's that possible? The biggest problem after the fall was how then can mankind be reconciled, restored in relationship to a God? And how do we get back into His presence? There was only one way into the Garden of Eden. And just like this east-facing entry, the Garden of Eden had one entrance, and it was from the east side. And when Adam and Eve sinned and were removed from the presence of God in the garden, cherubim, these same angelic creatures we see stitched into the curtains, were placed one on each side with flaming swords to keep people from the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 explains why. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Yet the tabernacle was a picture of Eden restored. God was once again inviting his people into his presence through the mediation of priests who would minister before God, specifically through the mediation of the high priest who would go before him on behalf of the people and sacrifice for their sins. The tabernacle was full of meaning for Israel. 
these blueprints were more than just practical construction documents. They are full of how to know God. They're teaching Israel how to know God. So finally, I'd like to think about the fulfillment of this tabernacle. The writer of Hebrews, we've looked around at the Old Testament, now we go to the New, where the writer of Hebrews, we've looked at this multiple times already in our study, tells us the tabernacle was a shadow and a copy of things to come. That's Hebrews 8.5. This, this temporary portable tent would eventually be replaced by the temple where a permanent tabernacle was erected in Jerusalem where God would continue to meet with His people. Yet even that temple was destroyed multiple times. So what the tabernacle pointed to was not just the temple to come, but to Christ Himself who said, I am the temple. Kill me and I'll raise this temple from the dead three days later, which is why we will join next Sunday to declare the one who is resurrected. Jesus Christ is the tabernacle where God would dwell among us. Uh, We'll follow the same path we did under the last heading. First, I want us to see how God is with us in Jesus Christ. It was no mistake when the Apostle John began his gospel account, he connects the birth of Jesus to the tabernacle. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Dwelt among us. It's the same word. Tabernacle among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. What John is saying is what we see in the shadows of the tabernacle. We now see clearly in the light of Christ where God came to dwell among us as the Son of God humbled Himself, took on flesh, was born of the Virgin Mary, and lived among us as one of us in order that He might save us and to bring us into the presence of God. And so if you're a Christian... You need to be reminded this morning that the holy presence of God now resides in in you. That's a massive thought. The Holy One of Israel now lives in you. He's chosen to take up residence in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit tabernacles? In you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You want to hear some really good news today? If you're in Jesus Christ, you are that temple. It's an absolute mystery. It's absolutely true. You are the temple where God has chosen to dwell. And we weren't able to approach God on our own merit. You didn't become that temple by some resume of your own righteousness. No, what qualified you to be the place where God would choose to reside is because God has chosen to reside there. And in doing so, He has made you a holy place where the holy God could dwell. This is what Paul's getting at in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He says that God chose us 
before the foundation of the world, before you've done a thing, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So you see, it's not that you're holy on your own, but the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us. It's been imputed to us, given to us. A people who were not holy are now called holy. And now our work, our response is to live in the nature that God has already made us. To live in the way that he's already conditioned us, claimed us. In 1 Peter 1.15, he exhorts, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Now, people don't like to talk about holiness anymore, but the Bible has a lot to say about holiness. God likes to talk about holiness, his own, and how we must, as his people, also be holy. I remember as a kid, um, walking from uh, the church to my house, which was a very short distance. We lived on property, so people always watched everything I did. I actually loved it, but that's true. And I remember singing this, this little chorus. I don't know when it was written, late 70s, early 80s. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. That's pulling in like Pauline language from Romans 12, 1, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. It has this understanding that God has created us to be the sanctuary of God, the very tabernacle of God. And then, and then just one more thing. Ephesians, I think it's chapter 2. You can find it on your own. Uh, where, where Paul says the church now is where God tabernacles. So like as we are, are put in Christ and then fashioned together as the body of Christ, inside you, Trails Church, God has chosen to dwell. Amazing. And then second, God has made a way through Jesus Christ. These blueprints of old also foreshadow the blueprints of salvation. Let's return to the question, how can a holy God dwell among sinful people? The answer is ultimately seen only through the completed work of Christ. Once again, I'll call your attention to these cherubim that are sewn into the curtains of the holy place, guarding the entrance, guarding access into the presence of God except for a select few, except for one person. But not just anyone could come. Yet the moment that Jesus died on the cross, the veil that we just read about was torn in two. Not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. Matthew's very clear. Matthew 27, 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The veil that had separated God's people from his presence for over a thousand years was split in two. See, the veil is torn forever. Cleansed with blood, we pass now through. Because the flesh of Christ was torn for us. We have no reason for this veil anymore. The flesh of Christ torn so we could enter into the presence of God through the blood of Christ which is the only way to enter into the presence of God. And, and then 
Dr. Luke records in Acts 6-7 that great, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's no small detail. The ones who hated Christ, the ones who uh, orchestrated his death. Now, a great many of those people became obedient to faith. How's that possible? We wonder why. These are the only people with access to see the proof, the evidence of the death of Christ and what it meant for God's people. They saw that curtain torn in two and they believed in Jesus as their salvation. A sacrifice had to be made, a once and for all sacrifice. And by his death on the cross, Jesus paid for our sins once and for all. And he entered the holy of holies with blood on his hands, blood that was reserved for you and me. And so I wonder, so, so how is it that these ancient blueprints are a blueprint for salvation? They tell us there's only one way to God. There's only one way that a holy God can dwell among unclean people, and it's through Christ who went into the holy of holies on our behalf. And so if you... No, even now you are separated from God because of your own sin. The Bible tells us exactly what to do to be reconciled to God, to be brought into his presence. The only way is to repent of your sin, to tell God you're sorry for the ways that you've broken his law and commands, and to believe by faith, to lay hold of Christ by faith, believing that he is the son of God, and by believing you too can have life in his name. For in that veil was torn so that sinful people might be made holy through Christ and that we might approach him. So the tabernacle served its purpose in the place where God would dwell among his people. And in these ancient blueprints, we see the purpose that they fulfilled in their time and also how in the fullness of time they gave way to Jesus Christ, the true and better tabernacle. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word, for these ancient blueprints that speak of your holiness, that detail your glory, and that speaks so loudly of the salvation that comes by grace through faith. Pray we would respond uh, to this passage with, with faith. Um, for those of us who are in Christ, that we would hold up our lives to the light of your word and ask you to make us holy. If there's areas of our lives we need to repent of, God, let repentance be our response. And I pray for any who are still separated by their sin, still dead in sin, that today might be the day of salvation. That you would give them the gift of faith and they would respond by belief in Jesus. I ask all of this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.